This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. As crowds lined up in front of the Capitol last week, Christian imagery was on display amidst the Trump-Pence 2020 and Confederate flags. He would on memorabilia and Viking helmets. Protesters held crosses, Jesus Save signs, and Jesus 2020 signs as well. As protesters crowded into the Capitol steps across the street, someone blew a shofar while a woman sang, Peace in the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus covering this place. One person even brought a Christian flag in the congressional chamber. The Atlantic's editor-in-chief, Jeffrey Goldberg, covered the protest and interviewed a Texas resident who told him, the country was falling apart and this dissolution presaged the end times. Here's the quote. It's all in the Bible, he said. Everything is predicted. Donald Trump is in the Bible. Get yourself ready. This is also Goldberg's analysis. The conflation of Trump and Jesus was a common theme at the rally. Give it up if you believe in Jesus, a man yelled at me. People cheered. Give it up if you believe in Donald Trump. Louder cheers. So in the aftermath of this capital attack, many saw a clear connection between the violence and Christian nationalism. As Tish Harrison Warren wrote for CT last week, quote, the responsibility of yesterday's violence must be in part laid at the feet of those evangelical leaders who ushered in and applauded Trump's presidency. It can also sadly be laid at the feet of the white American church more broadly. We wanted to define Christian nationalism and understand its rise in the white evangelical world. We also wanted to help church leaders who are trying to de-radicalize members of their own community. We're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson. I'm Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, Ted, what a gut check. I want to hear your thoughts, I guess, about all of this Christian imagery showing up and being a large part of these demonstrations and eventual riot that took place. Yeah, I was talking to, you know, someone online who was wondering, wow, why is everyone talking about, you know, Christianity all of a sudden? You know, they're like, this guy wearing this, uh, you know, helmet and, you know, face paint. It's like, this dude doesn't look like an evangelical to me. And I thought, how... How can you miss it? You know, and and part of it, I think, was, you know, how we perceived it. I was watching CNN, you know, kind of where CNN's cameras were focused on the Capitol. It was just hard to miss this giant, you know, Jesus 2020 banner that kept showing up and their shots of what was happening, happening on the Capitol. So, you know, part of it is, you know, of course, I'm also watching it during my work day here at Christianity Today. So I was largely perceiving this through kind of a lens of like, man, look at how strong the religious imagery was. Uh, you know, my friend was like, man, I'm not seeing any of that. And I will admit that, you know, when I went back the next day and, and, you know, in the course of, you know, trying to get Christianity Today articles up, looking for news photos to illustrate it, you know, it was harder for me to find some of the kind of, uh, you know, obvious religious symbols and imagery that I, that I had seen, you know, on video the day before, you know, maybe it's a, a matter of perspective. But man, I think as as some of the reporting has kind of come out over the last few days, I, I have I have carried kind of heavily the syncretism and idolatry. I, I, I'm, I'm it seems very clear that it was it was it was throughout that attack on the Capitol on Wednesday. Thinking through both the people sucked in to this cult, basically, and the people who have encouraged it, either cynically or through self-deception. And I, I've really been wrestling with what's our responsibility at Christianity Today and also just, you know, how you know, what's the different approaches for discipling people and for calling people out. I mean, I think that there's certain people that need to be called out and certain people that need to be rescued. And it is interesting for me, you know, you know, now we're a week later and you have all these calls for unity. And for me, it's like, oh, man, like, yeah, you know, or the like, oh, you know, everyone, you know, no one's perfect about these things. But yeah, well, the same guy, the same guy who wrote, you know, all have sinned and who have wrote all these great 
lines about big unity is uh, you know with others as far as it depends on you but you know uh, on epiphany i was reading you know the epistle reading from paul in ephesians where it's you know he says you know let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things god's wrath comes on those who are disobedient therefore do not be partners with them i'm like yeah man that's kind of where i'm at is there's a lot of folks we who are claiming to be christian leaders that we're just need to be in a mode of do not be partners with them. We're still with the uh, approach of what comes after, which is like, remember that, you know, you were once darkness, but now you're a light in the Lord. You know, it's you can't do, go into that with spiritual arrogance and self-righteousness. But I think, man, guarding the flock right now just seems so important. And <laughs> there's so many wolves to, to cast out right now before we can really sense that we're guarding the flock. I have more thoughts, but, you know, you want my gut? My gut right now is like, let's let's go get these wolves how about you morgan i was reading through a piece that went up in the new york times yesterday and it mentions a little bit of what we also talked about in the intro i was just going to read a couple sentences from it it says the presence of christian rituals symbols and language was unmistakable on wednesday in washington all of this was interspersed with allusions to QAnon conspiracy theories confederate flags and anti-semitic t-shirts and then says this blend of cultural references and the people who brought them made clear a phenomenon that's brewing for years now that the most extreme the corners of support for Mr. Trump have been inextricable from some parts of white evangelical power in America rather than completely separate strands of support these groups have been increasingly blended together when i read those graphs one of the things that i first thought of was about Paula White's presence in the Trump's evangelical Christian advisory board and how about it was pretty surprising from a theological point of view to see Paula White there originally, given that she adheres to things that I think are outside of, (laughs) especially for many of the Southern Baptist leaders who are on the team, just has different theology than them. And to see them being willing to work with her and also to see them willing to work with a female pastor when I guess just parts of her theology never seemed to have jived in years past surprised me and also made me wonder what was the larger thing that they saw in her or felt in her that made them willing to overlook that. And I felt a little bit that when I was seeing all of this imagery, because I think it it is pretty unmistakable that there is a lot of Christian imagery happening here. And it's also very true that there's a lot of stuff that's not Christian at all. And in some ways, very pagan. So that's what I've, been trying to ponder and understand. I, I don't think I necessarily, I, I'm definitely sad to see all of this stuff here, but I'm, I'm way more surprised when I see kind of what you were talking about, like syncretism, some of the blending of other things being tolerated and encouraged, almost flaunted out in the open. And that's been, that's been very confusing to me. I think also, you know, this event happens a couple weeks after this Jericho event that also took place, which is, I think, one of the the first events that kicked off this Christian nationalism discussion going mainstream, at least in the past couple weeks. I know there's been other periods in which it has been brought up and talked about at length. But at the Jericho march, we saw a lot of things that just seemed to, again, border from using your faith. I mean, there's been tons of times where I've been in places and growing up, you know, where people would pray for our country or ask for prayer or sing patriotic songs that invoked God. But there seems to be another level that has crept up in the past four years. And I'm really eager to get into that today. Who's our guest, Ted? Our guest today is Paul D. Miller. He's professor of the practice of international affairs at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He's also a research fellow with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. His book, Just War and Ordered Liberty, just came out from Cambridge University Press and directly related to our conversation today. He he has written quite a bit on Christian nationalism and now is working on a book tentatively titled Christian Nationalism in the Age of Trump or InterVarsity Press for IVP Academic. Paul, welcome to Quick to Listen. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. All right, Paul, let's start with a very easy question, which is this. How do you define Christian nationalism? The the $64 million question. Um, (laughs) That's what we're paying you, right? That's what I wish. So I think it's easiest to try to define Christian nationalism by contrasting it with Christianity. Christianity is a religion. It's a set of beliefs about ultimate things. 
It's importantly about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's drawn from the Bible, from the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. Christian nationalism is a political ideology about American identity. And it is a, a set of policy prescriptions for what the nationalists believe the American government should do. And so it's not drawn from the Bible. It's drawn from political theory, from secular philosophy, and from their own version of history as well. I'm going to quote from Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. They wrote a great book just out last year called Taking America Back for God, all about Christian nationalism. And they define it this way. They say, Christian nationalism is a cultural framework, a collection of myths, traditions, symbols, narratives, and value systems that idealizes and advocates a fusion of Christianity with American civic life. I think that's a great way of understanding it. Christian nationalism believes that American nation is defined by Christianity and that the government should take steps to keep it that way, to sustain and maintain our Christian heritage or our Judeo-Christian values or something like that. So it's not merely an observation about American history. It is a prescription for what America should do in the future. We should sustain and continue our identity as a Christian nation. That's Christian nationalism. I'm I'm interested in that because you know there's these measurements that Perry and Whitehead use that I think are really helpful. Some of which are kind of religious statements. So one of the ones that I've been thinking a lot about, you know, they have kind of these five questions that they ask, kind of to measure people's adherence to kind of Christian nationalism. And one of them is, you know, whether people agree with the statement, "I consider founding documents like the Declaration of Independence and Constitution to be divinely inspired." two things I want to say about that. One, that sounds like a religious belief and not just a policy prescription. What's your view on that? Is that is that just because it's, it's an indicator that someone holds to the policy prescription or is it a core value of kind of Christian nationalism? The other thing I want to, I want to just note for our listeners is that what caught my attention on that was Sam Perry last month noting that that belief that I consider founding documents like the Declaration of Independence and Constitution to be divinely inspired is a view that more than two-thirds, 68.4% of white born-again Protestants in America said that they agree with. For the last month and a half, I have not been able to get that number. That, that to me, like, forget whatever. <laughs> we talked about the 81% ad nauseum for the last four years. Like, that 68%, it has devastated me. But I'm curious about whether you see that as indicative or core to Christian nationalism. Well, I'll put it this way. I think what I like about Whitehead and Perry is they create a kind of a sliding scale of Christian nationalism of intensity. And the belief you identified, I think, is one of the most intense beliefs of Christian nationalism. If you believe that, that puts you pretty far down that scale of Christian nationalism. If you say the Constitution is divinely inspired, yeah, that's you're 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 high up there on the scale. You don't get much more Christian nationalist than that. And now you ask, does that make it a, a religion? And I'll, I'll I'll put it this way: sometimes uh, we social scientists talk about the ideal type of a thing. In other words, its logical conclusion, its purest form. And I will say, I think that nationalism, any kind of nationalism, in its ideal type, its purest form, is a religion, and it is idolatry. And that's true for any kind of nationalism, and it is also true of Christian nationalism. It is a type of nationalism that takes Christian symbols and rhetoric and concepts and weaves it into a political ideology that, in its ideal form, is idolatry. I want to be clear, I'm not saying everyone at the protest or the riot is therefore an idolater. I don't know if they hold the ideal type of Christian nationalist ideology. Uh, That's the virtue of recognizing it as a sliding scale. People fall all along this scale, but at the very far end, the very extreme type is, I think, yes, an, 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 an idol. Let's talk about that for a second, because I, this is a conversation that I have been having on, on Twitter recently, and that is, should we be considering Christian nationalism a worldview? I mean, I, I've been thinking about you know, you know, evangelical efforts to combat you know, kind of, you know, worldviews, these kind of isms like modernism or you know, uh, sec, you know, secularism, you know, a, a number of things. That are argued kind of propositionally. I'm not sure that we've made a lot of progress, but in terms of rescuing the perishing, in, in terms of like grabbing people out of those beliefs and saying like, come to you know biblical truth. I don't know if if we've been as successful. Yeah, to what degree should we think of you know kind of Christian nationalism as a comprehensive set of worldviews that if you 
have this belief. You will probably have this belief. You'll probably have this belief. That's one way of looking at it, and it's fair and it's insightful. I, I tend to prefer the language of, of ideology, that Christian nationalism is a political ideology. An ideology is a linked set of normative ideas about the social and political order, right? Spe- specifically how society and politics should be ordered. Yes, you're right. It's linked ideas, but it has an ought to it. It says, here's the story of the world and how the world should be. And it gives me a role to work to, to bring that world to pass. That's what an ideology is. And that's true of socialism, Marxism, and fascism. It's true of nationalism of all stripes, and including Christian nationalism. So I, I just tend to use that kind of language. It's more common in the literature and, and political theory and political science, ideology, political ideologies. You mentioned that you know there's a, an ideal type, but how broadly do we think Christian nationalism is? Like, how influential are these claims? How far have they spread? Like, when you talk about you know how big is the ideal type world, and how much are the is just people who are sucked in in part to Christian nationalism? So to cite again, uh, Whitehead and Perry. They measured this, and they say that by their counting, 52% of all Americans are either what they call ambassadors, that's sort of the hardcore ideologues, or accommodators, which are people who are sort of adjacent to Christian nationalism, tolerant of it, and sort of accepting enough that they're not going to get in the way. That's half of all Americans, including 78% of self-identified evangelical Protestants. Um, that's the statistic that sticks in my mind. You talked about the 68%, 81%. Well, I've got 78% for you. 78% of self-identified evangelicals are either ambassadors or accommodators of Christian nationalism. It's really important to recognize that distinction, by the way. The ambassadors is a smaller group. It's, again, the hardcore ideologues, those who really spend time developing this ideology, thinking about it, praying about it, and advocating for it, writing their congressmen or attending the protest. The accommodators are those who maybe hear the ideas, and they don't really object. And they they might agree with half of it or, or more than half. They might not be as active, but they're certainly not opposed. And that's a pretty large chunk, I think, of this population we're talking about. Of that 78% of self-identified evangelicals, it's about half and half, if I look at the numbers right, half ambassadors, half accommodators. And my response to those two groups are, are pretty different. Earlier, you talked about you know going after the wolves. Well, I think it's the ambassadors of the wolves. But the accommodators are, frankly, I think they're the sheep who need teaching and wise correction and counsel and gentle rebuke to say, help them think more clearly about the ideology that they've been, I think, deceived into. The ambassadors are the deceivers, and they need to, to be sort of expelled and, and rejected. But the accommodators are the ones that need gentle correction, rebuke, and kind of, I kind of re-embrace if they'll accept it. Paul, just going back to this symmetry conversation that we were having earlier, I had mentioned that I, when I was growing up, I was familiar with people singing patriotic songs, sometimes in church. I'm sure many of our listeners have seen American flags in church and so forth, and other times, maybe church events where you would say the Pledge of Allegiance. Does that fall under Christian nationalism? For the most part, I'd say it does. I, I want to be clear, though. I'm a patriotic American. I served in the United States Army. I'm a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. I love the United States. I, I take my kids to Fourth of July parades. I read the Declaration of Independence to them on the, on the Fourth. There's nothing wrong with what I would call patriotism. In fact, I think we should be patriots because I think that's actually the best guardrail against the unhealthy kinds of nationalism. Just to be very clear for your listeners out there, I want to affirm patriotism and the love of our country and the, and the love of the good things about this country. I'm proud to be an American. But there's a time and a place for it, and there's a appropriate sort of boundaries around that. And I think that church is not the right place for that. I very much advocate for taking flags out of church buildings, not because we hate America, but because when we're there in a church, we are celebrating our citizenship in a different polity, in the kingdom of heaven, which is, by the way, a kingdom that includes all peoples drawn from every people, language, tribe, and nation on earth. And that's a wonderful thing. So that's why the American flag does not belong in a church building. Similarly, I'd I, would not advocate uh, you know, singing patriotic songs in church. I'm a little cautious about celebrating, you know, for example, many churches on Memorial Day weekend, they will do a special kind of shout out or thank you to veterans. That's a gray area. I think it's okay to say thank you to people for their service. Some churches go too far and they hold big patriotic festivals on the weekend. I think that can obviously go too far. A little bit of biography. Like I grew up in very conservative 
almost fundamentalist style churches, you know, ones highly associated with, you know, like John MacArthur's type churches. So not like fundamentalist, fundamentalist, but, you know, um, very conservative. But I grew up out West. I grew up in Hawaii where nationalism just isn't as much of a thing. I grew up, uh, you know, out West in Seattle that has its own kind of cultural things and very conservative churches, but never would have seen a patriotic weird, you know, kind of one of these God and country rallies, even among some of the more conservative churches. I'm sure there were, but man, I just didn't encounter them. And I went to a number of churches. And then even out here in kind of Wheaton, Midwest, suburban place, like it's just a lot of this is hitting me as like, man, I did not realize how prevalent these numbers are shocking me because I'm like, how are these numbers so big? And I'm like, is it because they tend to be more Southern? Is it because they tend to be more rural? And I just haven't been, is it like, I don't want to necessarily uh, equate this, but I'm wondering, like, why is it that a number of us who have grown in the church have been blind to how common some of the God and country extremes of Christian nationalism are in congregations? So you're right that um, it is unevenly distributed around the country. This is absolutely more common in the South, with a pretty strong representation in the Midwest. It is more strong in rural areas and smaller towns, less common in bigger cities. It is more common in areas that are whiter. And there's also a a class and education distinction here. More common in the lower and middle class and more common amongst the population that does not have a college degree. Now, you just said, like, I haven't encountered this. I'm not trying to be snarky here, but I think you maybe have some listeners who are thinking the exact opposite. Like, how could you not? I've never seen anything but this. Because in certain parts of the country, you never see anything except this kind of God and country co-celebration. And it's extremely prevalent. Now, I'm from Oregon. I didn't grow up in the South. But I've traveled and I served in the military. And I served, you know, I was based in the South for part of my time. And so I did, I guess, see some of this a bit more up close. So I think the regional uh, distinction is important to keep in mind. I'm wondering how much of this is something that is... (laughs) Is yeah, not to get all you know sixteen nineteen on us here, but like how much of it's like, dude, Christian nationalism is like it's what has been a key strand in American Christianity ever since we we got here, and how much of it is something that had really picked up in the you know seventies eighties with the you know rise of the religious right or or some of these aspects. Like, how much should we see this as it's always been in the water, and how much of it should we see it as like? It's really cranked up recently. To answer that question, I should just start reading from the book I've been working on <laughs> and read you the, the middle third of the book, you know, 35,000 words worth. The, the answer is it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's a little from column A and a little from column B. From the time Europeans stepped foot on North American shores, they thought of the polity they were building here in religious terms. So to some extent, it's always been part of the kind of the European Christianity that was imported here. Look, it's a kind of a version of Christendom, so to speak, this blending of sacred and secular identities to create a unified polity that makes sense of the universe, right? So yes, you can find chapters in American history where something like this is always here. Some Americans during the founding thought that America was the, quote, new Israel, right? They said that, they wrote it that way, and they thought that the revolution was sort of a step forward in the building of the kingdom of God. And it was much more the case during the Civil War which was this righteous crusade against an evil slave power, which by the way it was, but they used that sense of self-righteousness to construct a form of American nationalism that was highly Christianistic and highly self-righteous. And it was pretty unhelpful. So yes, it's always been in the water. How has it changed? Over the past hundred years, as America has grown less Christian and less white, it has put the white conservative Christian population onto the defensive. And so, you know, we feel like the world's against us. We're shrinking. Our power is shrinking. Our influence is shrinking. All of the other forces in the world, non-Christian and foreign influences, are now controlling our country and taking it away from us. So Christian nationalists, in the last, say, you know, 40 years, they tend to believe that Christians are under attack and are being persecuted. And that leans towards a worldview that includes a lot of fear, a lot of us versus them dichotomy. Forces beyond our control are steering events against us, so you know even paranoia, and that's I think how today's Christian nationalism is different than past generations, and why it does bleed over into some of the conspiracy theory stuff as well. 
This episode is brought to you by Church Salary. Coming up with a reasonable salary range for church staff has never been easy. There are so many details to consider before setting compensation for church staff, and you're probably asking yourself questions like, are we paying too little or too much? What benefits do we offer employees? What's a reasonable housing allowance? Church Salary believes that offering competitive and fair compensation helps keep people in ministry. Using the expansive church-specific compensation database and powerful salary calculator tool, you can also make better compensation decisions so your staff can focus on their ministries. Start with Church Salary's annual membership today to run unlimited customized reports and get access to our member-only content. Ready to start making better compensation decisions? Get started at churchsalary.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Right. I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. When I look at some of these questions that measure Christian nationalism, I have experienced radical versions of that, where we, you know, had a person call CT after we ran an, uh, an article on guns, who was very clear that they viewed the Second Amendment as equally divinely inspired to Scripture. They they held no difference in their view of Scripture and their view of the Second Amendment. To what degree is just a view of God being extremely active in the world shaping? how people are drawn to Christian nationalism and how people are answering questions about Christian nationalism in ways that, that make them seem very, very nationalistic. If you ask me, should the United States try to adopt Christian values? I think that may actually be one of the questions that Whitehead and Perry ask. I think I would probably say yes, because what I mean is that as Christians, I, I feel we are called to work for justice and the common good and to care for the poor. And those are Christian values, Christian principles, and I think our country should you know, pursue them. So that's a pretty ambiguous measure. And it does not, you know, that doesn't make me a Christian nationalist. I think we Christians should be involved in the public square. We should advocate for justice, drawn from our understanding of justice that, that comes from the Bible. That's not Christian nationalism, right? Christian nationalism is an argument about American identity. We are a Christian nation and we must remain so. God, God specially favors the United States or something like that. That's the distinctive beliefs of Christian nationalists. Look, there's an overlap between sort of legitimate Christian engagement in politics, advocating for religious liberty, advocating for the unborn, and what Christian nationalists advocate. They tend to agree with us about those things, that, but, but uh, they then have their own distinctive beliefs that I part ways from. When we criticize and condemn Christian nationalism, that is not a criticism of all Christian political engagement at all. In fact, we need to remain involved in politics, partly to, to, to thwart the Christian nationalists and also to kind of take back the name of Christ and say, you know, we don't think that the name of Christ belongs on that agenda. So, Paul, many people have been asking this question in the past four years, which is, how did Donald Trump gain so much support from white evangelicals? And I know there's many reasons that we can go into, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. And at the same time, you know, what exactly happened during the 2016 presidential election and subsequent four years that changed the influence of Christian nationalism? 
a lot of commentators will say it was so unlikely that Trump would capitalize on the Christian nationalist movement or on, on Christian support because of who he is personally and his personal conduct and all that. But actually, if you look at his campaign and his rhetoric, he was very clear about it. He was absolutely clear and explicit in pitching his campaign towards Christians, despite his own personal conduct and all that. You know, for example, in June 2016, he said, quote, we will respect and defend Christian Americans. In September 2016, he said, in a Trump administration, our Christian heritage will be cherished, protected, defended like you've never seen before. And in January, he said, Christianity will have power. No other candidate ever came close to being that explicit and that blunt about championing Christian power. And that's Christian nationalism in a nutshell, is advocating for Christian power rather than Christian principle. I think many other candidates advocate for justice the way I'd like to see. That's Christian principle. But Trump was very clear in saying, I will champion Christian power. And that's why he struck such a deep chord among many largely white evangelicals who that was their their political program for decades had been Christian power. Turns out more than Christian principle. I guess one question I've got is, I would like to talk about what the what role race and the and the fight against racial injustice plays in trying to understand Christian nationalism. We've heard a lot about the mixed symbols. I mean, there there is the uh, rebel flag in, in the Capitol was you know obviously one of those symbols that just was shocking. We talked a lot about the racist comments, the the N word being thrown around as as Buzzfeed uh, reported. There was a lot of explicit racism in the in the attack on the Capitol. There's also a lot of discussion about Christian nationalism being directly connected to kind of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a white Christian nationalism and there's a kind of a white nationalism. I'm wondering how, how you perceive those things being connected. So on the one hand, I think we need to recognize that the alt-right and, and, and white nationalism, that's just straightforwardly racist. They're blunt and clear and explicit. They equate Western civilization with European DNA. They, they rarely talk about Christianity except insofar as they claim it as part of the Western or European heritage, you know, the heritage of Christendom. Christian nationalism isn't that, right? It's, it, on its face, it's very different. It, it would strongly reject white nationalism and would not make the claim that whites are inherently superior. So that's on the, on the surface level, we need to recognize the very clear difference. It's also true that if you dig a bit deeper, you'll find that Christian nationalists and white nationalists, I think they do tend to agree on a range of subjects kind of at the sub-level, so to speak. So for example, if you say, you know, the continued existence of, of, of racial inequality in America, is it primarily due to individual merit or is it primarily due to structural systemic factors? Well, on that kind of question, I think Christian nationalists and white nationalists would probably agree and they would say it's due mostly to individual merit. They would similarly both advocate for strong immigration restrictions. They would reject that systemic racism is a thing. I think they tend to overlap in some, I'd say, racialized attitudes or viewpoints, even though at the top level, let's recognize that they say very different things about whiteness and white, uh, the white race, or whatever you want to say. So I don't want to say at all that Christian nationalism is straightforwardly racist or, or white nationalist. There is a difference, but there is some overlap in those underlying attitudes. Does that make sense? It does. Let me ask you about the other overlap, and that is between white Christian nationalists and Christian nationalists of, of color. That pair in my book is super interesting uh, all the way through, but one of the most interesting things I found was they found that being a member of a racial minority group and holding certain Christian nationalist views actually led people to have a stronger racial justice orientation. I'm interested in kind of what may be going on there. I mean, obviously, there's a long history. so. Two questions there. One, help me understand what's going on there when you're talking about Christian nationalist views among whites and, and non-whites. And then also, uh, how much should we be thinking about outcomes, You know, what the effect that Christian nationalism has on how we talk about it and how we oppose it? Is it the thing for us to attack itself, or is it the thing that it does that we need to be focused on? So um, I'm going to reference another book. This one is called White Too Long by Robert Jones, who's another pollster and does a lot of statistical work. And you know he ran a bunch of numbers. And one of the things that emerged was, to me, just eye-opening in a very uncomfortable way. What he found is that black Christians and white non-Christians, they tend to see the world one way. 
and white Christians see it another way. And so white Christians' distinctive worldview can't be simply a function of their Christianity, otherwise black Christians would agree with them, and it can't be simply a function of whiteness, otherwise white non-Christians would also agree with them. But there's some distinctive interaction between whiteness and Christianity, which means that white Christianity or white evangelicals is now an ethno-religious historical community with its own distinctive worldview and its own distinctive way of interpreting reality. It's not Christianity. It is white Christianity, or we could say Anglo-Protestantism. It's a distinct religious socio-cultural tradition that has emerged in the transatlantic area over the past three centuries in the United Kingdom and the United States. It interprets the world in a unique way. You could say lots of things about the unique historical contribution of Anglo-Protestants, but it's also true that they seem to be uniquely blind to the realities of a racialized society. That's my you know, best answer on what's going on here. What's going on is that white evangelicalism is, is not really anymore a sort of re- grand tradition of religious reflection and practice. It has rather become increasingly a narrow kind of provincial ethno-religious community that is simply advocating for its own perks, power, and privilege. Where should we be taking aim? I mean, to me, taking aim at the some of the views of Christian nationalism, if some of these statements are being viewed by some ethnic minorities in ways that are consistent with Christianity, makes me wonder, you know, should we be taking on Anglo-Protestantism more than Christian nationalism? Well, I don't want to get too hung up on the labels. Uh, yeah, sure. If, you're, if your question is, what do we do or how do we undo this? Is that sort of what your question is? It is. Well, I guess the... <laughs> How much must our answer to this be kind of first and foremost a race question rather than a politics question? Well, I think it has to be both. I don't think you can actually disentangle those things at all. I think any question about race in America is definitely a political question. I think the answers, and there are many, and there are many parts to the answer, part of it has to be a reminder our religion ought to transcend any particular historical community to the extent that we are finding ourselves becoming more too too narrow and provincial in our Americanness, our whiteness, our Angloness, whatever you want to call it. We need to expose ourselves to critiques from people of other traditions and other communities. I think that's the best answer on an individual level is if you find yourself in this situation, go find somebody who is from a different tradition and just kind of sit and listen. You don't have to, you know, have a awkward conversation about the Capitol riot. You could just try to deliberately deepen your friendships with those of different cultures and communities and traditions than you are. That, that's, you know, a, a, an important step. We can also remind Christians of the long tradition of what, uh, of the good stuff in Anglo-Protestantism or white evangelicalism or, or simply Christianity, right? <laughs> remind us of the, of the grand tradition this was. You know, you mentioned Frederick Douglass. He's an American Christian and he gave some extremely good sort of sermons or, or lectures about the nature of the American experiment and its relationship to Christianity. And he did that as a Christian, not as somebody who criticized Christianity, but rather used his Christianity to criticize the church, the, the American, the white American church. Let's cultivate an awareness of that. Let's read Frederick Douglass and learn from him so that maybe in our day, we can learn how to distance ourselves from the unsavory parts of the white church's past and cultivate the best of American Christianity, which Frederick Douglass sort of exemplifies. So that is another way that we can correct ourselves and our and our neighbors, I hope. All right, Paul, one of the things that I've been really trying to understand over the past week is we know that the gigantic lie that many people believed is the reason why so many people showed up at the Capitol last week, and that was about the election being stolen. I think when many people are going to be thinking about this insurrection for years to come, they will be thinking about the fake news and dishonesty of you know the leaders of these people that brought them there when you you think of christian nationalism to what extent is this dishonesty embedded and baked in there to what is extent is it something that has accelerated in the past 4 years how do you see a connection between the two tragically i think more people probably sincerely and genuinely believe what they are saying than consciously lie about it. I think even Donald Trump actually believes he won the election. If you listen to the phone call with the 
Georgia Secretary of State, you know, he actually seems to believe this stuff. I'm sure there are some leaders out there who are deliberately lying. But I think the primary problem in the pews at the kind of lay level is probably not conscious, mendacious lying and deceit. I think it's probably more a problem of hard-heartedness, of closed ears. It's a problem of pride, a refusal to listen, a refusal to reevaluate their beliefs in the light of actual factual reality. It's, it's a refusal to recognize facts as facts. And that's, again, a problem of pride, hard-heartedness, not as much about lying, I think. It seems to me that for the Christian nationalists, their, their preconceived beliefs about America and about Christianity's relationship to America is now more important than reality to them. And so when reality conflicts, reality loses and their, and their beliefs went out and they hold on to their beliefs in the face of conflicting reality. And they just invent a way to explain away these aberrations. And that's exactly what gives rise to conspiracies. Conspiracies are a way of explaining reality away and taking refuge in, in, in fantastical beliefs. I, when I think about that, though, I just it, it makes me ask myself, like, is that something that, you know, Christian nationalists are especially prone to? Or is that something that <laughs> all of us humans would be prone to? I, I've been trying to ask myself the past couple of days what it would take for me to see everything I believed in as not actually true or not actually reality, which is making me ask myself, like, what would be that catalyst or or how would I get to a place that I would actually begin to doubt that? Have you done any um, research that gives us a sense of what, what would get people into that self-critical or self-reflective mode? Yeah. So, I mean, you're asking, how do we, how do we help those who may be kind of on the edge of this sort of movement, maybe the accommodators? What do we do, right? I shared this thought over Twitter. I, I uh, used to work for the United States government on, on terrorism and, and the war in Afghanistan. And we would talk about de-radicalization, the, the efforts to change the, the terrorists' minds and convert them to a non-terrorist worldview. And that's a helpful framework, I think, for thinking of this. We found that uh, these kinds of programs work best when they were locally driven, when they involved strong institutions of civil society, like mosques, right, religious institutions, and when they reintegrated these former extremists into strong local communities. These communities would give the kind of the former extremist a sense of belonging and purpose and identity separate from their old, you know, their old affiliations. And, and this, by the way, holds true. Not, it's not just about terrorism. Gangs, like when you talk about criminal gangs, like the same is true. If you need to get somebody out of a gang, you put them into a local community with a strong sense of belonging, purpose and identity. So I, I think today, I think churches, I think particularly white churches, churches that are predominantly white or led by white leaders, who recognize the threat of Christian nationalism and they want to do something, they, they sort of need to adopt a different understanding or a, a, an additional understanding of the church's mission. They are in the business of de-radicalization. Again, 77, 78% of self-identified evangelicals are supporters or accommodators of this, of this ideology. So that's tens of millions of people. And the church's job, you know, this, I know there's some people out there who are thinking it's not the church's job, the church just preaches the gospel. Well, the church must always confront false teaching. And we now have false teaching in our midst in this form of Christian nationalism. It's also the church's job because we have to confront sin. And there are people who are taking the name of Christ and they are involved in public sin by, by engaging in riots and, and even political violence and bringing the gospel into disrepute. And it's the church's job to proclaim the name of Jesus and preach his gospel and call out false gospel. So this is the church's job. And I think the church has to preach the truth and it has to build thick forms of community that give people meaning, purpose, and belonging, separate from our political lives. That is an essential part of treating the, the, the loneliness, the fear, the anger, the alienation that many Christians feel, and that is leading them into the Christian nationalist movement. Do you think that the ways that we work with those who have been deceived should look the same as the way that we seek to reach out to and confront leadership? No. Again, that's kind of a distinction between the, the, the ambassadors and the accommodators. The hardcore ideologues need rebuke. I think that they need public rebuke and they need private rebuke. If it's okay to name names here, I think we all probably know about the example of Eric Metaxas and how he has really, I'd say, gone hard in the direction of, of sort of pro-Trump advocacy and Christian nationalism. I don't know him. I've never met him. I, I'll state here publicly, I disagree with him, and I think that he's doing harm to himself, to the nation, and to the gospel. You know, through what he's doing, that's a rebuke. I do hope that he has friends and family in his life 
that are willing to say that to him privately and to plead with him to stop. And there are other leaders that need that sort of rebuke as well. But that is different from, again, that sort of the accommodators, the people in the pews. I think that there's probably accommodators in most white churches in America. And they need correct teaching, they need love, and they need community. I, I come back to this again and again. Church is not just a place you go to for a good lecture about the Bible. It shouldn't be. It should be a place where you go to live out the gospel in community with others, where you serve the church and you serve your neighborhood in love. Those roles of supporting the church and serving your neighbors that give you that meaning and purpose and belonging that should draw you away from the unhealthy political expressions that we're seeing out there. I just wanted to ask you a follow-up question about some of these community groups that you're talking about just for anyone who's listening to this that is a pastor or a church leader right now. If you were going to start something like this at your church, how might it look and what type of, for lack of a better word, I don't know, tell me the right word here, reprogramming might you start with? I mean, is this something that begins with trying to change people's minds about the election? Or is this about a belief system that goes a lot further or into some other like fundamental you would start with? I would not recommend the pastors stand up and, and, and try to deliver a sermon against Trump or, or, or against the riot. It's probably not the best place to start. <laughs> I do think pastors need to preach sort of correct political theology and eschatology. They need to preach about the kingdom about Jesus is our king and his kingdom is not of this world. We need to be very clear about that. I think pastors do need to say from the pulpit that America is not a new Israel. Even today, there's a lot of Christians who seem to be confused about this. America's great. It's wonderful. I'm a patriotic American. It's not a new Israel. You know who the new Israel is? The church. The church is the new Israel. And we need to say that and say that loudly and often. It's, it's a bit of remedial theological education that we need, but we need it. So pastors should say that from the pulpit. What does the community look like? I want to recommend couple books here by Jonathan Dodson, a friend of mine, and I was a member and a co-elder at his church for a number of years uh, down there in Austin, Texas, Gospel-Centered Discipleship by Jonathan Dodson. And then he co-authored one called Called Together, A Guide to Forming Missional Communities. And those are a couple books about what I think this looks like in practice. It is living the gospel together in discipleship and community and service to the church and to the neighborhood. It's not just an insular thing. It's also outward facing to the world. It's serving them uh, to make the world better. You know, we're called for good works and that's, that's what this looks like. When we form these kinds of communities, small groups, whatever you call them, it's more than just Bible study. It's also living it out in, in service. That's the kind of thing that gives people purpose, identity, and belonging in the church for Jesus and to our neighborhoods and to the world uh, in a way that is the opposite of this Christian nationalism. I mean, the sermon is absolutely key. The sermon is absolutely key. But I am thinking about the ways in which Christian radio, to, to another degree, to Christian television, but I think, you know, in my experience, especially Christian radio, has done a lot to kind of promote either Christian nationalist ideas or really Christian nationalist adjacent ideas, both of these things. What are other ways in which churches can de-radicalize and, and just kind of and correct and disciple people in ways that, that confront this, if I've heard one thing from pastors, I've heard it many times. It's man, I, I got these folks for an hour. I got these folks for an hour a week. Fox News, some of these other shows, you know, they've got them for dozens of hours uh, a week. In, in some cases, I can get a little discouraged by that. What's another way in which churches can help to disciple people into being citizens of Christ's kingdom and out of Christian nationalism? I guess I have maybe a two-pronged answer. One is that I do think the past pastors, even from the pulpit, can start calling out some of this stuff. I normally wouldn't say that, or, or I'm not entirely comfortable with it, but I do think the problem is so severe of, of sort of news consumption and being formed and catechized by secular media. It's so severe that I think pastors should start calling it out and warning people against both the volume of time they spend on this stuff and also particular sources of uh, disinformation and, and deceit. You know, pastors in shepherding should warn the sheep against falling off a cliff, against falling for, for lies from the enemy. And so calling out and saying, look, how much time are you spending a day listening to Fox News and, and, and talk radio and all that kind of stuff? Somebody sent me an article uh, recently from the Epic Times, which I had never heard of before, but it was something that said, you know, the Capitol riot was actually done by Antifa. Obviously that's wrong. I think 
we need to learn the skill of critical analysis of the news sources we get. And so pastors can sort of exhort the congregation to do that. That was something that Franklin Graham was out there promoting. You know, it's hard for you know lo- your local church pastor to get up there and say, you know, Franklin Graham is wrong and leading people astray by saying this was an Antifa thing. Is it a matter of pastors need to be more courageous about that? Or is it a matter of, you know, hey, you know, choose your battles, you know, maybe, maybe talk about how, <laughs> maybe attack the uh, message more than the messenger. Like, I'm sympathetic with the pastor who's like, I don't know if I'm going to get up in the pulpit and say, stop listening to Franklin Graham. It's partly about courage, but it's also about, but look, no pastor, no white evangelical pastor is that shy about preaching a sermon about abortion and, and about the, and they're not shy preaching a sermon about the imperative of religious liberty. Pastors are not politically quietistic. They, they do have a political program that they are unabashed about uh, preaching from the pulpit, and that's good. Okay, so you need to recognize there are a few other issues that belong on that list. I'd say that racial justice belongs on that list. And I would say that this mess we're talking about belongs on that list. Law abidingness, constitutionality, <laughs> Christian nationalism belongs on that list because it has come to deceive 77% of, of self-identified evangelicals are somewhere in this movement. And so I just want pastors to recognize it has now come to be of such serious concern. I think that they do, it's, it's time. It's time to start addressing this directly, explicitly from the pulpit as one of those few political issues that they need to address. Now, I said I had a two-pronged answer. The, one is the pastors, but the other one, and, and probably the more influential one in the long run, is the community. My sense is that many churches, maybe this is unfair because I, I, you know, I've not attended every church in America, but I, I feel like there's a culture in our, our churches of focusing on the preaching and the written word and letting community maybe just sort of happen on its own. And, and maybe it doesn't. I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. I think the building the community is sort of as important as the preaching because that's where the preaching comes to be lived. And that's where the accountability happens, right? And the accountability is key here. Who's going to warn the guy I sit next to in the pew, who's a retiree, you know, maybe goes out for coffee once a week, but who's going to warn him not to watch Fox News five hours a day? Is it the pastor? No, it's more likely going to be the guy who sits next to him in the pew or who, who invites him over for dinner every other week. That's where the more meaningful measures of accountability are going to happen. But it won't happen if churches aren't purposefully, intentionally building community that give people the role of holding one another accountable. That is what churches are for. And I'm not sure it's happening at the scale we need it to. When we often have international guests on the show, I ask them how we listeners might consider praying for the church in their country. And I would just like to do a version of that question today, which is for our non-American listeners, how might you suggest that they pray for the United States right now? Uh, pray for justice and pray, pray for peace. That's what politics are for. They are for peace and for justice. And we pray that that will characterize this country and, and all countries in the world. Think, pray for maybe clarity and truth. It seems to me that we're in a moment where Again, pride maybe is taking precedence over truth. And so perhaps we need humility to hear the truth. Pray for the rebukes that need to be spoken, uh, to be spoken with courage, but also with love. And pray for a, a gentleness in how we reach out to not the leaders, but the, maybe the followers of this movement. Pray for gentleness in how we reach out to them and lovingly plead with them to, to steer away from the dangers of this movement. All right. Well, thank you so much for this really thorough and thoughtful conversation. For people who have feedback for us, we hope you do. Please send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We're also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. So send us what you guys are thinking and any reactions or questions you have from this conversation we've had with Paul. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is one, everyone has a chance to share something that has recently brought them joy. Ted, are you ready to go? I am ready to go. Usually my precious moment is a little bit distant from the topic of the podcast. Usually it's about board games, and I did play a fun board game this week. But I've got COVID symptoms with members of my family here in the house and folks uh, elsewhere, so I've, I, it's been a, it's been a busy week. But I would say that for me, actually, and not to get, you know, overly play the spiritual card or whatever, 
my joy this week was spending just a ton of time in Ephesians 5. Like I said, I woke up on on Epiphany, which you know is when we kind of think about the wise men visit, the Magi visit, you know, the Epiphany being the revealing. Uh, also, the baptism of Jesus is connected into that. But the Bible passages are often about light. During the riots, you know, my focus was very much on this idea that of you know the story of the Magi, where that you, know, you had uh, Herod, who was kind of pretending at wanting to worship. Jesus Christ and trying to suck in these these folks who really wanted to worship Jesus and use him for his own violent devices. And then later on, as I did a later prayer, the focus was on the epistle reading, uh, Ephesians 5, and it really reoriented me just, just in terms of my own need to be light and, and for me to be light not as trying to <laughs> not trying to use my own light, but to be, you know, this kind of idea that everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. My job is to be a moon. Use use the, use the sun's light to reflect and to, as Paul says, I have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is God. It is always God's light, but He can use me in doing that. And then Ephesians five takes this really interesting turn, which is be careful how you live, not as unwise but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. You know, makes a lot of sense and very relevant to this week. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. For me, that was connected to do not, you know, get drunk off of social media. But then it says, you know, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everyone in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for me, that was a an important thing this week of saying, all right, sing, sing a lot more this week. And so I spent a lot of time singing psalms and uh, trying to share interesting songs on social media instead of sharing my outrage. I think a lot of times in our praise and worship mode, we can think of kind of praise and worship music as distracting us from the problems of the world. But man, the Psalms just don't let you do that. Like it is so connected with things are bad and God will act and God will judge. I've been there this week. So singing, (laughs) so listening from folks like what songs do you think we should be singing this week has been a real place of joy and hope for me. As I've often said, I, I believe most when I sing, it's been really good to sing and sing with people this week. How about you, Morgan? Well, as most people know, I have been in the process of moving to Hawaii the past couple times we have recorded this. I have been very blessed by the Buy Nothing Facebook group that is here in Oahu. I don't know how many people are familiar with Buy Nothing groups, but they are exactly what they sound like, where people post or ask for stuff. And basically, it's a ton of really helpful neighbors trying to help each other out. So... I did not move with very much kitchen stuff at all. And so I reached out to see if people had kitchen stuff. And I think we did like six or seven pickups around the island and got all types of great stuff that you need, aka things like silverware. But also someone gave me a crock pot and someone gave me a magic bullet blender and other stuff that I didn't even have in my own kitchen when I lived in Chicago. That was pretty great. And I... Really appreciate how generous people were with everything. There's a lot of military communities over here. And so I think that there is a decent amount of people moving and coming. I talked to multiple people who, for instance, bought new stuff after they came here and their stuff didn't arrive in time. So they had extra things or people who consolidated households. But that was really touching. And also I got to see more of the island as well, driving around since this particular Facebook group was for all of Oahu. So shout out to everyone in that group for being very generous and welcoming and shout out to my parents for renting a car so we can put all of it in there. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Paul, what do you have for us? We got a puppy about two months ago and he has probably been my most favorite new source of joy in my life, particularly since my kids are at school, my wife's at work. And so I'm at home with a puppy all day. (laughs) Was this your idea, Paul, or were your kids telling you to get a puppy? It was absolutely not my idea. My, my wife and my kids have been asking for a puppy for most of their lives. And I resisted, resisted, resisted. And so I have to go on record and say I was wrong and they were right. Uh, this so puppy you waited until your kids left? 
Oh, well, I mean, they, you know, they get to play with the kid, the puppy over Christmas break and whatnot. You know, having him as a little companion while I read and write and work has been nice. He's like a little therapy dog. So I've uh, thoroughly enjoyed that. You all had much more profound answers, but that's been the chief source of my joy this week. All right, Paul, where can people find you on social media? And if you can remind people the name of your books, too, that would be great. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at Paul D. Miller 2, Paul D. Miller 2 on Twitter. My most recent book is Just War and Ordered Liberty, just out from Cambridge University Press last week. Currently working on this one on Christian nationalism. Should be out, I'm going to guess, in about a a year from University Academic Press if everything goes well and passes peer review and all that. So thanks again for having me on the show. Well, that is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Quick to Listen. It's produced by myself and Matt Lindor. Transcript is done by Bruni Ashola and Yvonne Sue, and the music is by Sweeps. Again, we love hearing from you. Send us emails at podcast at christianmeetoday.com. You can get a subscription to Christian Me Today at orderct.com slash podcasts or if you want to contribute to the ministry you can go to morect.com slash podcasts please rate and review the show as well again we appreciate all of that that's available on apple podcasts we'll see you all next week bye This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.